This podcast is brought to you by ProLongevity, the award-winning eight-week program that can transform the lives of people with prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and many other lifestyle-related illnesses. Founded by Graham Phillips, the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Graham Phillips is a registered pharmacist, fellow of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and the owner of iHeart Pharmacy Group, a multi-award-winning community pharmacy group based in Hertfordshire and Kent in the United Kingdom. After practicing pharmacy for over 35 years, Graham came to the conclusion that our pill-for-every-ill approach to healthcare is fundamentally flawed. He is the founder of Prolongevity, a company that has been widely endorsed by leading medical scientists for providing a natural drug-free way to save people's lives while also significantly reducing the risk of many life-limiting and often fatal conditions such as type 2 diabetes, obesity, dementia, hypertension, liver disease, strokes, heart disease, and cancer. For longevity is based in St. Albans in Hertfordshire, England, and their practitioners are finding that in a matter of just weeks, their unique five-step healthy lifestyle plan is revolutionizing people's access to better health in the United Kingdom. They help their patients to make lifelong changes with a combination of remote monitoring, precision nutrition tailored to the patient, and support with coaching from their health professionals. Graham Phillips, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Hi, Casey, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have a good chat with you. I've been following your podcasts, and you've had everyone on, so I'm really honored to be included. Oh, man. Well, it's such an honor to host you. We have been very fortunate to talk to many wonderful people, including people that were very influential in, in your understanding, like Dr. Um, Drs. Dave and, and um, Jen Unwin. And, and yeah, it's been a really fun journey. And you're one of these amazing people. I'm so glad you were able to stop by. And I'm a little bit sad because we were at the same low-carbohydrate conference in Denver. We didn't get to meet in person. Yeah, it's very sad. So we'll have to put that right next time I'm in the States. Or you're very welcome to come and visit over here and we'll, you know, we'll buy you a pint of warm beer. That sounds great. I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience at that conference? Can you tell me some of the things that that you observed? Yeah, uh, you know... I, because we're all up against the system, right? The system of eat less, move more, take drugs, um, fat makes you fat. For me, the inspiration of being with our with our tribe, and I don't want to be too tribal, and it's a risk in me saying our tribe. It's the chance of a group of us who are passionate about healthcare, realize that the health system is fundamentally failing want to support each other, want to work together, I want to create an international collaboration. Being in a room together, particularly after, you know, not being able to be in a physical room together for so long, it it was inspirational. Um, Particularly for me, because so many of these people have been on my podcast, like Brett Cher, but I'd never met him, you know, in person. It's such a great shame that you and I didn't get to talk. So for me, it was I mean, every single presentation was excellent or inspiring. Um, I met so many wonderful people and I just went away. It's an affirmation, isn't it? I went away feeling there's such a buzz about what we're doing. It's so as a health professional, you know, you start off thinking you're going to help people and you get 20 years into your career and you think, well, the drug's going up, drug bill's going inexorably upwards. I'm spooning more and more tablets into people and they're getting sicker. And to have found a different path and being among a group of people who've also found that path. Yeah, it's been great. I'm I'm still buzzing, as you, as you probably realise. It, was, it yeah. was wonderful. Wonderful experience. Well, we all know yeah. that like the people that we place on pedestals you know, when we get to meet them in person, sometimes they're just as cool as they are when we talk to them virtually or when we're interviewing them. But, you know, sometimes in real life, they might be a bit of a jerk. They might not be the nicest person. Have you met one single person that was not as amazing and kind and nice as you thought they would be? Do you know, I reckon it must be about the fact that in a low-carb community, your insulin isn't going up and down and your mood isn't swinging right, left and centre. Um, I think it's a kind community and i think it's because we're fighting against the tide the vested interests of big food and big pharma and we recognize the need to work together and support each other and because 
it's a community that isn't just dominated by health professionals and professional etiquette, but it's dominated by what we can do for patients and clients and put them front and centre. So it's a very flat, non-egalitarian community. There's no space for ego, and none of us really want ego to to, to dominate. And we've all seen the downsides of ego, particularly in medicine. Um, so no, I, I, you know, it's been wonderful, and um, as you probably know I'm also a trustee of the public health collaboration and you've said that you've had David Um and Jen Umwin on they're two of the world's most wonderful kind embracing people and and that's the culture you know that's why I want to be involved with it and it's yeah it's great that has certainly been my experience as well I love asking people in the medical establishment to contrast that type of a conference with other conferences in the medical field. And that example that you gave, I think answers my question before I even have to ask it. Like when I'm looking around at 3 p.m., it's been a long day. Dr. Chris Palmer is talking. Dr. Tro is talking. His amazing talk was just an absolute mic drop. And you look around and everybody is quiet and focused and they're learning from some people, it's like, you know, taking in everything from a fire hose. It's so much information, very deep and technical. Everybody's cool. Everybody's fine. Nobody's falling asleep. And I'm guessing that your other conferences, about that time of day is where you might start to see people maybe nodding off or needing snacks or coffee. It was inspiring. I mean, you know, I to if you could nod, to nod off in one of Chris Palmer's presentations, you'd have to, you know, to me, it was just such an opportunity to be exposed to stuff like that um yeah um we had three fantastic days karen and i absolutely loved it and we also had some really good steaks so what's not a lot to like you know even better even yeah. better uh that's fantastic well thank you for sharing um some of that i definitely had a really special time this year as well and look yeah. forward to many more jeffrey gerber does such a great job putting that on in the guests and speakers lovely, lovely yeah yeah so amazing and and i learned from you off air that you left that conference you didn't necessarily fly back to london it sounds like you had an amazing trip where did you go after the conference well, um so we've got family there so uh, my my partner karen is a family doctor and and the entire family is a dynasty of doctors you've never i mean like everyone's a doctor and her brother is surprise surprise a doctor he's a um, respiratory physician works mainly for the pharmaceutical industry and he lives in denver so we took the opportunity to spend some time with with family, and also um, we've become quite uh, friendly with Chris Kenobi. And he's we've just about to release our podcast, so we spent time with Chris. And then we did a long tour uh, through Austin and ended up um, at the end through Santa Fe, and ultimately ended up um, in New Orleans. So we had a week of jazz and beer and burgers, very low carb, not. Um, <laughs> But hey-ho, it has to be done. So, yeah, we started off in the snow in Denver and ended up in absolute brilliant sunlight in New Orleans for a week. So, yeah, it was amazing. Beautiful. Oh, that's amazing. I used to go to a blues and jazz festival in Colorado, just a different part. It was up in the mountains in a place called Telluride. It was called the Blues and Brews Festival. And every Friday would be more like Austin-style blues, and every Sunday would start out and would be more like New Orleans jazz. And to contrast the two styles... It, it, it's just so powerful on like a Sunday morning in this cathedral of mountains to have yeah. New, New Orleans jazz with the full band and everything. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, I'm a big jazz fan, so you can imagine it was wonderful, yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, here in Utah, we took um, the basketball team that came from New Orleans back in the 70s, and so our basketball team is called the Utah Jazz, which has to do with jazz music, but it made more sense in Louisiana than it does here, but we kept the name anyway, so there you go. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your experiences. I want to go back and 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 kind of discover and uncover your personal story. How did you make your way through health? I, it's like you said earlier, like you get into this because you want to help people, but soon realize that might not be the reality of the situation. Um, it's a combination of a personal journey and a professional journey, the two things coming together. So I'll talk about my personal journey. Um. And I was a fat kid. And I was a fat kid in a class where all the other kids were slim. And what strikes me now is if you go to a school kid class now, the slim kid is the odd one out and all the kids are fat. And there's a whole story behind all of that, of course. Fat kid, fat adult, became a health professional. And, and 
followed all the rules because I knew what the rules were. I knew it was a question of counting the calories and I knew that fat makes you fat. So you eat carbs because that's lower in carb density. And I knew that you need to eat less and move more. And do you know what? It, it does work. So if you starve yourself and run like hell, you can lose weight. The trouble is you can't sustain it. So I went, I was just a typical yo-yo dieter for year after year after year. I put the weight on, lose the weight, put the weight on, lose the weight. Um, and ultimately, um, and this is something I've discussed with Tim, Tim Noakes, what no one chooses to be fat, right? You might live with it, but I don't, very few people would have it as an ideal choice. It's become a norm, but I don't think it's particularly a choice. And as Tim Noakes said, the real problem is, is hunger. And so you can, you know, all diets last for three months and almost no diets succeed at 12 months. And what defeats you is the hunger. Uh, and, and that's what I found. I could sustain it for a short term and then the hunger would get the better of me. The carbs would creep back in, the calories would creep back on, the pounds would go back on. And of course, over time, because of the effect it has on your metabolism, your metabolism gets slower and slower. So in the end, you're eating less and less. You're hungry and hungry, and you're getting fatter and fatter. So that was my life experience from, as I say, a young man up until my probably my 40s. And there's a quite famous science program on BBC in the UK called Horizon. And I don't know whether you come across Dr. Michael Mosley. I don't know if he's as well-known in the US. He's very well known in the UK and, and Oz. I don't know. I know the name. Yeah, I know, know the name. And there was a Horizon program and it, and it started off eat, let, eat, eat less and live longer. Interesting. Watch the program. And basically it was the 5-2 diet. So what Michael had done, he had the same struggle I'd had. He's, um, he's a medical journalist, but he's um, a medical doctor. And likewise, spent a lot, had a lifetime struggle with his weight and went around the world investigating all these different groups of people who are controlling their weight, including these people called the cronies. Do you know about the cronies? No, I don't. Calorie restrictors. So these people eat 1,800 calories a day or 1,700 calories a day, and they chronically restrict their calories. So it's optimal nutrition, but minimum calories. Interesting. And, and they compared him. He compared himself to one of these cronies. And guess what? The crony was was essentially ostensibly aging half as rapidly as as Michael. Hmm. Anyway, so the five two diet. Probably your your people in your program know it. But essentially, in the five two diet, you eat uh, more or less five hundred calories a day, any kind of calories for two days a week, and you eat normally the rest. And I thought, well, I could do that. I mean, I could starve myself for two days and eat normally, and it worked. And within a very short period of time, I lost 10 kilos. And I thought, wow. hang about, on a calorie counting, calories in, calories out basis, this doesn't add up. It doesn't, the science that I understood doesn't work. And that made me go back and re-explore the fundamental science behind cell metabolism, mitochondria. And I realized that... The definition of a calorie, the scientific definition of a calorie in a closed system, and of course we're not a closed system, is the amount of energy required to heat up one C or one, one cc or one mil of water by one degree centigrade, right? And that's physics. And that's certainly true for physics, but we're not physics, we're biology. So I realized that the entire thing is founded on a myth. So that was my kind of personal journey up to a point. My professional journey was that I started with one pharmacy. It became very successful. I became very well known in the area. And there is something of a difference between community pharmacy as practiced in the UK as and in the US. There's less dominance by chain pharmacy. And we are, we play a very big community role. And you do see that in American pharmacies as well, where you've got small town pharmacies owned by independents, the whole town knows them. So that was the way I practiced. And I was always very interested in prevention of public health. So I was a pioneer of smoking cessation and nicotine replacement. And I realized just how powerful a role one could play as a community pharmacist embedded in the community, 
And we were pioneers of smoking cessation before the health system ever caught on to it. And when the health system started to introduce smoking cessation into the NHS, I trained the local doctors and not the other way around. So I had a background of public health. Go forward a few years, my one pharmacy became two, my two became four, and my four became ten. And I became very senior in uh, acting in local pharmacy politics and representation. And then I got involved in our professional body, which is effectively a Royal College, the Royal Pharmacy Look Society, found myself on the board and found myself chairing the education committee. So now this little guy who had an aspiration to have one corner pharmacy ended up with 10 ended up at a national level and ended up bumping into not just all the opinion formers within my own profession, but pretty much all the senior le uh, leaders within allied professions of nursing, dentistry, medicine, the Royal College of GPs, and bumping into politicians. And we developed what I would describe as a group practice. So in the UK, most but not all family doctors um, practice in group practices. And I work with lots. And I realized that you could have a five partner practice in a town of 10, say 10,000 people. And there'd be a fantastic, synergistic, dynamic relationship between each of them. They'd all have specialisms, providing fantastic services to their local population with very good practice management. So they were doing well, the patients were doing well, everyone was happy. And you could go five miles down the road and there was another group practice also supporting a similar group of patients. You know, everything was similar except the culture of the practice. And what you actually had was five doctors working in the same building who hated each other with low morale, no synergy, and none of those things were going on. Wow. And I also realized that at the same kind of time as um, communications IT started to arrive, I realized that you could practice in the same professional space without being in the same building. So as my group of pharmacies grew, and as my experience of working with other professionals grew, I decided to recreate our pharmacy group as a group practice. And we started to be research active. We started to have um, work with academics. We started to train other pharmacists. And as we did all of that, we started to win awards. So we, although we were a small, relatively small group, we had a national scope, a national reach. We were recognized for our advanced practice. So you're saying, okay, well, what could possibly go wrong? So we had 10 years of outstanding success. We won all these awards. But then I looked around me and I thought, hang about. The drugs bills are going about upwards. I'm spooning more and more tablets into people, and I'm rather good at that. But the people aren't, around me aren't getting better. They're getting sicker. They're just getting sicker more slowly. Something doesn't add up. So I guess my professional and my personal journey at that point collided. And I realized from my own personal circumstances that there is an alternative for spooning statins and whatever it, today's drug is, we go into people. And I was fortunate at the time all these things started to take place. I started to bump into this community that's now become the public health collaboration. So I bumped into Asim Malhotra, the, who I call the crusading cardiologist, who's still a great friend. I bumped into um, David Unwin. And I, I seen this thing with the 5-2 diet and it experienced it. And I thought, I can do something here. And... I realized that there's an alternative pathway. So put all this together. And at the same time as all these things took place, serendipitously, um, continual blood glucose minute, monitors became available. And I realized that what spikes your sugar spikes your insulin, what spikes your insulin sets you off in, in the direction of metabolic syndrome. And I had a friend called Jeremy, and I can talk about Jeremy because he's on my website and I've got his permission to, to talk about it. Now, Jeremy was a multimillionaire uh, entrepreneur in the healthcare space, but he had an engineering background. 
And by this stage, I'd known Jeremy for 20 years. We were both in our 40s. And Jeremy wasn't particularly overweight, but he'd been hypertensive for like 25 years. And Jeremy being Jeremy, he wasn't seeing the local family doctor. He was seeing all the leading people. So for 20 years, Jeremy had been under the care of a leading cardiologist. And he would go back for his annual review year after year after year, and the cardiologist would add another dose, add another drug. And he was at the point now, they just added the fifth drug to Jeremy's regimen of medication. And it was controlling his blood pressure in fairness, but he wasn't feeling great. And it was kind of inexorable, more drugs, more doses. You know, it just doesn't, it didn't feel great and it wasn't great. So I said, Jem, with your engineering background and with a bit of my skill, why don't we just slap on a CGM and see what happens, a continual blood glucose monitor? I thought, let's gamify. I'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. Let's... And I had no particular expectation. Next morning, big blood glucose spike. I sent him a WhatsApp. What do you have for breakfast? He said, oh, my normal all brand. I said, Jem, that's just sugar. Who knew? Who knew back then? So he said, well, what the hell should I have for breakfast? I said, have, a, have an omelette, have an egg omelette one day, cheese omelette the next day, avocado. Anyway, long story short, within four weeks, he'd lost, let's say, 10 kilos. And he wasn't particularly overweight, but of course, he was still taking all these medications and his blood pressure is now in his boots. So he said, what do I do? I said, well, look, Jeremy, I could do a medication review for you because that's what's pharmacy. But I said, you've been seeing this cardiologist go back and see the cardio. So it was another few weeks by the time he got to see his cardiologist. He'd now lost 12 kilos, I think, 15 kilos. So he's seen this guy for 20 years who's always added another dose or another drug for 20 years. And he says, I've never seen anything like this in my entire professional life, halves his medication. We're now three or four years on. I think he's 23 kilos lighter, and the only drug he's taking is a statin. And I, the only reason he's taking that is I can't convince him he doesn't need it. Ah. Right. Now, I'm a scientist, right? I know that every witch doctor has got a magic story, and it's an N equals one. Um, as a scientist, I know, I know you cannot extrapolate anything from a single N equals one example. But I thought, well, this is interesting. Let's try it on other people. So I tried it on different ages, different, uh, different, obviously to the different genders, different circumstances, and blow me down. I kept getting these unbelievable results. I mean, it was like mind blowing, and I didn't even at that stage I didn't really understand understand why I was doing so well. But I got these results that were just chalk and cheese, a million times better than anything I'd ever achieved with with medication. And that set me off on a proper journey to say, I need to properly understand the science. Amazing. The one thing about a pharmacy degree is it's a very broad life science degree. So if you think about all the aspects of metabolism, cell biology, electron chain transport, mitochondria, all this technical stuff, you do learn it at university and you promptly forget it because you do all the stuff with drugs. But it meant that I could go back and explore it right from the start. And I, having hated endocrinology when I was at university, I then became obsessed with it. And now, of course, I, I've, I've now got a really complete understanding of what works, how it works, why it works. And we've created this program, Pro, Pro Longevity, and I'm getting results like that all the time. And I, at least I now understand it and it's reproducible. So I know that's a terribly long answer to a short question, but I hope you can, you know, understand where I'm coming from. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. It's such a wonderful story. And you're you're so right about the end of one thing. And like if you if you see one here or there, it, no big deal. It doesn't really tell you anything. It's not a randomized controlled trial. It made a difference to that one person for sure. That's great. Cool. But, but now we're here, and it's not only that you have a mountain of people that you've seen this work for. I now have a mountain of people that I've seen this work for. Tro, Dr. Lenskis, you know, the Fet Keys. You've got all of these thousands of people that have their own mountains of N of One stories and people they work with. Like, it's, it, it was, it's so frustrating to have spent so much time 
doing something that hardly works for anybody, but then to find something where you, it hardly doesn't work for anybody. Uh, yeah, literally, we haven't had a single failure, except in people who don't engage with the program. And I still regard that as a failure because what did I not do for that person that meant they didn't engage when I know what the benefits are? But overwhelmingly, we get results. And my, I, obviously, over time, I've got better at it as I understood it and I got better at explaining it to people. Um, I'm still blown away after 12 weeks to see the transformation of clients' lives after decades of illness and the light coming back on. And it's the most, as a health professional, despite all the other rewards that we've won, this blows me away because it's just what I came into my profession to do. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm thinking back to Low Carb Denver, and there was a kind of controversial figure there, and he made a presentation, and it was all about, you know, there's many different ways that you can control for weight loss. And he was only talking about weight loss in particular. And yeah. he took the stage early in the day, and later on in the, state, in the day, it was like we said, Dr. Chris Palmer, Dr. Tro, they're not just talking about weight management. They're talking about, like, heavy mental disorders and anxiety and depression and dementia and like all of these other things cancer like there's so many other things that's not just weight control absolutely and the biggest myth i guess i mean there's many food myths out there um lies my doctor told me as ken berry would put it um the biggest myth is that it's all about your weight and actually, the relationship, the there is a correlation between poor health and weight gain, but it's a pretty poor correlation, which explains why you get people who are pretty overweight but per perfectly metabolically healthy. And that's not the group I worry about. The group I worry about are slim, apparently fit, middle-aged men who are looking, who look fantastic on the outside, and they're on fire on the inside. And those are the ones who don't come to the attention of the medical establishment because on the face of it, they're looking great and they think they're doing great. So no one would be bothered. And they're the ones when they do have a catastrophic event, like a heart attack, they're the ones where the heart attack kills them or they get cancer and die very, very quickly because no one has been shown any attention to them and they think they're doing the right thing. And there's a huge number and it's much more true in men. No, that's such a good point. I want to make sure we go back and highlight this. You and I came to the same yeah. conclusions about the difference between calorie restriction and time-restricted eating. I was using metabolic carts to be able to validate this, and we knew over the years, if you eat less calories, we could measure that your metabolic rate would be lower. You would drop it. And so yeah. effectively, doing exactly what you said you were told to do and all of us were told to do, it, yeah. it's it's not it's not unlike getting onto a treadmill that's always going faster and faster. Like it, you can keep up for a while, but eventually it's going to dump you out. And the yeah. things that you did to lose the weight caused the weight loss on the back end because you did what you said, drop your metabolic rate. What I was noticing is people were doing fasting, so they definitely weren't eating very many calories, but their yeah. metabolic rates were way higher than what they should have been, not lower. There was a different effect, and it took me forever to learn that difference. Can you explain why fasting is not the same as calorie restriction? Yes, yeah, so the body has all these different mechanisms. And if you just chronically calorie restrict the body says ah calories ain't coming in let's not burn as many calories and there are multiple ways that you can reduce calorie expenditure probably by a third but essentially what the body does is it it looks at all the different just like you know with a tesla if you put it on um chill mode you know it doesn't accelerate quite as fast you still get from a to b um, it uses the battery much less. It uses the, um, it turns down the air conditioning. So you've gone from A to B, but you've gone to, from A to B using a lot less energy. And the body has multiple mechanisms, multiple ways in which you can reduce calorie expenditure. For example, you'll get colder. Uh, you'll, spend, you'll spend less on repair. And you will use every single calorie to its utmost and that's particularly true if you're on a high carb diet because that's a very energy conserving diet so there's a big difference between the metabolism when you're primarily burning sugar as your fuel and when you're burning 
fat as your fuel. What um, Ben Bickman calls un mitochondrial uncoupling. And then you kind of waste energy. So just if you take isocalorific diets, in other words, the calories are identical, but one is high carb and the other one is high fat, which forces you to either burn the carbs or to be burning the fat. You actually use more calories that way. And through all of the human evolution until 50 years ago, our problem's always been a lack of calories, not an excess. So everything about our evolution has designed us to be fuel efficient. We've never been in a period of fuel excess. So we have no adaptation to it. So that's the first point. The second thing is that the, the SAD or the standard American diet that we're all fed has been carefully calibrated to do two things. One is to give you a dopamine spike. So more is never enough. And the second is it completely bypasses all the body's naturally natural satiety mechanisms. So your body knows when it's satiated and it tells you you don't need more calories. But if you eat my, I mean, the favorite example I always give, I love Doritos and I can eat a sack full of Doritos. And when I finish the sack full of Doritos, I'm hungrier than when I started. Yeah. And I feel dreadful the next day unless I eat another sack full. And it's dopamine spikes. So you're, you're eating this a diet that bypasses all your satiety mechanisms doesn't provide nutrition but provides excessive energy and they're not the same thing as well as being addicted addictive put that together and you've got the perfect storm and all of that of course destroys your metabolism as well so we're wrecking our metabolism along the way perfect storm is a great way to say that these ultra processed foods are terrible yeah. and you're right like nobody can eat just one chip or a bowl of chips like they're going to get to the end of that bag they're still going to be hungry and it, yeah. it's so it's so unfortunate because when people are trying to again follow this advice they yeah. think it's them they think it's their poor willpower they yeah. were determined to go on this diet they're going to stick it out this year they couldn't do it last year but this is the year and it's yeah. like you said like in the beginning it works like you are losing weight but then you you notice those effects i love that you mentioned coldness especially hands and feet start to feel very, very cold. You yeah. have no energy. Your motivation is waning. Your yeah. cravings are increasing. You are up against some super powerful hormones. You're not going to win. It's the wrong way to go about things. You can't cheat to two million years of evolution. You just can't, you can't beat it. What you can do, of course, is work with it. And now you're, then you're onto something. Yeah, exactly. So let's go a little bit. For, you know what? Actually, I do want to ask you about the the pharmacy uh, position. What what is it like? How are you paid? How are you incentivized? How, how does that system differ in England than it does here in the United uh, States? Look, I. It's not fundamentally as different as it should be. Um, and I want to see community pharmacy completely repurposed on the preventive agenda. But going back to what I was talking about earlier on with the smoking cessation, the next big thing was sexual health. And I know this is probably true in the States now, but we were there a bit ahead of our American colleagues. So when the what's called the morning after pill first came out, we, we really mustn't refer to it, to it as that because it can work up to five days after unprotected sex. We realized that, and the medical authorities started to realize that pharmacies could provide that. And where women were given the opportunity to access um, sexual health from a pharmacy as distinct from through the medical fraternity, overwhelmingly in large numbers, they chose the pharmacy. And we also know um, that pharmacies tend to be the relationship between community pharmacists in particular and patients and the public tends to be a much more equal relationship. And I well remember, as I said to you, we were giving smoking cessation uh, advice and support well before the local doctors, and they used to refer people to us. So I'd say to the patient client when they came in, how many fags do you smoke? And they say, well, I told the doctor it was 10, but I can, the truth is it's 20, but I couldn't tell my doctor that. And so there's this 
peer-to-peer -peer very equal relationship between patients and the pharmacists, whereas the relationship between doctors and the pharmacists has been characterized as parent-child. Mm. Now, I don't want to upset all my medical colleagues, right? There are many, many doctors who don't practice that. All the people that have been on my podcast, all the ones you've had, they're not like that, but a lot still are. And med medicine can be very hierarchical. And then you don't get that honest engagement. So then we thought, well, how can we leverage that? And that began that that set off something called healthy living pharmacy. And you can Google healthy living pharmacy. And it started off in a town court called Portsmouth, where there were very high levels of uh, health inequality, lots of sick people, and a shortage of doctors. And they set this scheme up to said, how can we leverage this relationship? and all these pharmacists to do more than dole out medication, what can they do in terms of sexual health and other forms of um, health literacy and support? And that became a national thing. And I was involved in moving that. I wasn't involved in the pioneering of it, but I was involved in create, recreating, re recreating that as a national program. So as I sit here today, the overwhelming majority of English pharmacies are healthy living pharmacies. Wow. We go through a stringent accreditation. So you can't just do it. You've got to go through a training process. And it's not just about the pharmacist. It's about our team. So every pharmacy were health, healthy living champions. The pharmacist and, our, and the teams provide that kind of advice. And it's a small unfortunately too small, but it's a small but significant part of our national contract. So unlike in the US, we have a single health service, which has the good, the, the good things and bad things about having a national service. The good thing is that you could be very consistent nationwide. The bad thing is you tend to stifle nation, uh, innovation, but it does mean that if we convince the NHS to do something, it can be rolled out across the entire nation. So I want to see healthy living pharmacy go beyond sexual health and smoking cessation. And I want every ph pharmacy in the country ultimately to be um, a longevity pharmacy. So yeah. the next stage for us is to get move our ends of one into scale it into high level data that we can then go to the health system and say, these are the benefits, these are the outcomes, and look what we saved on the drugs bill. Wow. Very similar to what David Unwin is doing. That sounds amazing. Exactly. Wow. So, I, and I want to see that both my GP colleagues and my community pharmacy colleagues working in partnership on this. And I see it myself on a daily basis when I look at the de-prescribing we're able to do, getting people off the medication, getting them off the insulin. It would more than pay for the service that I'm providing, but look at the health gain. Fewer visits to the doctor, much healthier individual, much less drugs, fewer hospital drip visits, and, you know, this reduction in all this cardiometabolic disease. So there's heart attacks, less strokes, there's cancer, less dementia, and on and on and on. Um, yeah, uh, it, it should be a no-brainer, but we have to change the paradigm of the system. Yeah. Okay. So is the savings that you're talking about, was that more than enough to fairly compensate pharmacists who are doing that work because i don't know how true this is but you're always told like the pharmacist gets or the doctor who's writing the prescriptions if it's here in the united states gets more money if they put people on more medications again it, it has that been your experience is that true is that false it's true. so it's probably it's so i i had tro on my podcast and he was describing how there's basically been a well uh, reverse takeover of general practice medicine or family medicine where the hospitals are buying the GP practices because they know that if they own the GP practice and they incentivize the GPs or family doctors accordingly, they'll write more prescriptions and send more referrals to the hospital. So it's a kind of reverse takeover. And I can't, I, I might be misquoting the exact figures, but he was, I think it was only a third of general practices in the US are now independent. That's much less true in the UK. So GPs are much more autonomous and much more masters of their own destiny. But nevertheless, they're still up against the system. And the system is, let's look for the symptoms and then let's prescribe drugs to suppress them. 
So there's no root cause analysis. So we're in a better position, but not that much better of a position. And yes, my very I've still got three very, very busy pharmacies, some of the busiest pharmacies in the country. And yes, we're doing all sorts of innovative practice, but it's absolutely true to say the overwhelming majority of my income is still around the use of drugs, dispensing medication, and the use of that medication. So that's something I want to change. I love that. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so you mentioned that the patients who are willing and wanting to do this, they generally see success. Yeah. What, what would the percentage be? Like if, you're, if you have adequate amount of time and you feel like the person is engaged enough at least to listen to you, what percentage of people say, you know what, Graham, that sounds great, but no thank you, just write the script for me so I can go about my merry way and keep eating my Doritos. And what's the split? Well, it's very interesting. Um, and actually, I think I would quote David Unwin here. Because he always offers people, you know, he's in the position to offer them the choice. And he says at least two thirds, if not three quarters, would rather do engage in a lifestyle intervention. Wow. I think overwhelmingly people don't want to take medicines. And all the evidence is that that's the case, because when you write prescriptions for people, invariably they don't take them. So if you take one of the medicine, one of the services we have in the UK is the new medicine service. Of a new medicine that's prescribed for a patient, and that's usually the most expensive one, 10% of people never take the first dose. But they don't tell the doctor, they keep going back to the GP and requesting more prescriptions because they're keeping the doctor happy, they think. So you've got all of the costs and literally none of the benefits. So 10% don't take the first dose. Within three months, a third of people have stopped taking it completely, but they carry on collecting their medicines. So we know that basically people don't want to take medicines, but the system doesn't really offer them alternatives. If at scale we offered people time and the alternatives, we could free up practitioners' time and we could free up the cost from the drugs bill in that way so wow. if we if we turn if we and, and the drugs but remember in, in the us the per capita spend on medicine is four times higher than it is in the uk so we're efficient right so your drugs bill the drugs in america for reasons that we can discuss if you want are far 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 more expensive than the same drugs in in the uk so the savings commensurate would be on a different scale. The potential is huge. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's such a quagmire, too, because like we know how certain drugs interact with other drugs, but every time you add another one, it's like exponentially, yeah. you know, you're just not sure. How, how, how do these three things interact with this compound? And then add another one. How do all four of those interact with that one? It would be such a mess to try to figure that out. That's where pharmacists are really good. And in the UK, most GP practices now have a pharmacist attached to the practice, not dispensing, but they're there rationalizing the medication. So they're very good at that, but they're not changing the paradigm. They just optimize. So they've got, we've got the wrong paradigm. They're optimizing the wrong paradigm, but they're not changing it. Yeah. I want them to change the paradigm. I love that. I think about our mutual friend, Corey Jenks. We've had him on the show. Yeah. He was a wonderful MC of Low Carb Denver, by the way. He did a yeah. great job. Very good, engaging, very funny. Um, and he's yeah. in a unique position that he does get to write the prescriptions. I spent yeah. a few years living in Brazil, and at least back then, it's been 20 years, but at least back then, I remember that you'd go, if you needed something, you wouldn't go to your medical doctor to get a prescription. you go to the pharmacist because they know the most about the drugs and the chemicals. And I always thought it was a little strange that we didn't have that same setup here where the doctor hardly has time to see anybody. He, he might not only know a certain drug from a mouse pad he was given by the drug rep or something, and he's expected to try to, you know, try to figure out what, what drugs are best and how they're going to react to each other. It doesn't make sense. So hmm. we have um, something called NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Ex Excellence. So generally speaking, our prescribers follow national protocols, so they're best practice, best evidence. So we are very rational about our use of medication within the paradigm 
that's the wrong paradigm. We're good at we that's why we're so efficient with the use of medication. But no one is challenging the paradigm except some of us are now, people like David Unwin, um, people like the entire public health collaboration, and all of us practitioners who realize, um, I think it was possibly, I can't remember if it was Gary Fetke said that once you practice like that, you can't, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I do lots of talks for GPs, as you know, David does. And I want the next step for me is to give the same talks to my pharmacist colleagues, because there's nothing inherently in the nature of pharmacists that we want to be spooning medication into people. We're not really comfortable about it, but the system doesn't give us the alternative and doesn't remunerate us for the alternative. But where you give people that alternative or you free them up in the way that I've been freed up, it's, it, you know, it's, it's fantastic. So yeah, opportunity. That's amazing. So on that note, um, changing the paradigm, you started Prolongevity. What other ways, we mentioned some of them in the introduction, but what are some of the ways that you are seeking to do that? It sounds like you're leveraging different technologies. Um, we mentioned precision nutrition that's customized for each individual. Um, tell us tell us about how that kind of stuff works. Yeah, um, I'll do that. And then perhaps I'll give you a, a couple of examples just to make it real. Great. So our starting point is two things. The first thing is data. So as a scientist and a health professional, you'd expect me to be data-driven, but outcome-driven as well. So our starting point is, how healthy does this person look when we interview them? What are their... So the major things we look at is their blood pressure, their height-to-waist measurement, um, their lipid profile, their cholesterol profile. I mean, I hate calling it cholesterol profile because it's not, it's lipids liver function tests, HbA1c, which is long-term blood glucose control. And what's their trajectory been over time? So the way health systems tend to work is they wait for everything until something goes red and they focus on the one thing that's red. And this is where engineers have been so good. Where If you look at the great successes in metabolic health, they're often either doctors of their engineering background, like Ted Nyman, or engineers themselves, like Ivor Cummins. And engineers don't just look at a snapshot. They look at what's the trajectory been over time. And I've realized in my clients that that person in front of me who's now got type 2 diabetes, you could have spotted that five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you could have stopped it along the way at any point. Now you've got a really sick person, and you can probably put them into remission, but you can't reverse it. So I... Like I saw a guy earlier on in his twenty, in his who's in his forties, basically fit guy. His cholesterol is high, so his doctor wants him to be taking statins. Right, that guy doesn't need a statin. What he does need is a little bit of a tweak along the way. He needs small adjustments to his diet. We'll do that quite rapidly. He can then live to hundred in good health. Right. He's basically, he's doing most of the right things. And I said to him, you know, I'm so pleased I met you now not in 20 years time when you've got you've had your first heart attack you've possibly had cancer you've got type 2 diabetes and your metabolism is is a wreck so we take all of the key data in a balanced scorecard kind of way so we don't just look at their cholesterol we look at everything and then we say okay what does the totality of that give us in a balanced scorecard and how does that has that looked over a period of time so trajectory the next thing is we say, what matters to you, right? Is it, and it may be for many people, I want to lose weight. It might be, look, all my family's got cancer. I don't bloody want cancer. All my family is riddled with dementia. I've seen my, I've just nursed my mother, my father, my aunt, um, and all the next generation, and I don't want to have that. What can I do to prevent it? It might be I'm a young woman in my early 20s with polycystic ovarian syndrome. My periods are a disaster and I want to get pregnant. And I, what do I do about it? So then it's about the individual in front of you. It's about the data that you've got. And it's about the outcome that they seek. Right. And then I bring together the data and I bring to, to get the outcome that they want, not I'm imposing on them. 
the date, the outcome that they want. And I might start by saying, let's start with your sleep that no one's ever discussed with you, right? Never thought about that. You're only sleeping six hours a night. Actually, that's the most important thing. Let's start with that. So then there's a negotiation with, this is where you want to go. This is how I believe I can get you there at the least cost in the most direct way with the least pain. So let's be on a journey together. Graham, so the problem is it's too logical. It's just too, too logical. It, it makes so much sense. Yeah. What do you want? So then, What's your goal? How do we get there? Yeah. But the health system doesn't work like that. The health system works with, oh, your, your cholesterol's too high, take a statin. And that's it. Your HbA1c is too high. Take metformin. No, that's not work, right? Or you're a bit overweight. The latest big thing is Wegovy. No root cause analysis, none, zero. And no healthcare care professionals are trained in the root causes of cardiometabolic disease. None of us. So we, those of us who are in this space are all self-taught. And the example I gave, and you may know this case, see, the first recorded heart attack in the entire world's medical literature, and I learned this from Chris Kenobi, who I know has been on your podcast, was just over 100 years ago, right? So 100 plus years ago, there were no heart attacks, like none. People did have heart problems, but they were infection, right? There was almost no dementia. People were not obese, and the percentage of um, and the type two diabetes was vanishingly small. And when the first guy, and I've forgotten his name, but when the first presentation at a medical uh, conference about a heart attack, everyone said, "So what? Nobody's having these things. Why would we be bothered?" Right? A hundred years on, and heart attacks are the single major cause of death in almost the entire developed world. What happened in 100 years? And why is no one asking the question, why has this happened in 100 years? Is the answer another drug? What's the root cause? So I'm fascinated with root causes, and I'm fascinated with living to a ripe old age in really good health. I that's what that. drives me. And that's why we called it prolongevity, not reverse diabetes. Because the answer isn't, not just catching these, catching, developing these non-communicable diseases. It goes much beyond that. Yep. Wow. I absolutely love that. And, and to think that your friend is now on omelets and eating egg yolks and lost all that weight and is feeling better and dropped all those medications, but he's still taking a statin because we blamed the saturated fat. We blamed red meat. It is absolutely absurd. It's like you said, as we evolved, huh. that was our food. Why, why? How do we not know that and, and blame the foods that are way more recent in our diet? Again, the ultra processed foods are like Chris Kenobi says, seed oils. It's ridiculous. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I, Chris has convinced me about the seed oils. We might differ slightly about whether to what extent the seed oils are to blame and what extent the sugar is to blame. But so what? We both agree ultra-processed food's about as good for you as, as smoking and probably worse. Let's not yep. go there. Yep. And, you know, uh, Chris has just published his book, and uh, we're about to release the podcast. So credit to the guy, because he's given up what was a very lucrative career um, to be a health pioneer. Yep, that's right. And he actually trained himself in public speaking. I'm not sure if you knew this. When I met him at Low Carb uh, Denver 2020, he had this amazing presentation. I got to meet him. I told him, like, wow, you're really good at presenting. He's like, if you would have seen me three or four years ago, I was a disaster. He taught himself how to present so that he could get his message out there to more people. What, what an amazing skill to acquire. Yeah, and same with me. I'd, I'd never really presented, and I'd never wow. done podcasts. But I realized that I need to communicate. This is too important to just, that's why we've tried to make it sort of a national program, because I could individually treat a few thousand people a year and make a, a living out of it. That's not going to change the paradigm. If I'm going to change the paradigm, I need to take my profession with me. We need to be working with other professionals. We need to completely re-educate all of us. And then we need to go to the health system and demand change. And we need to do that working, you know, as a social movement. And that is where the public health collaboration is so, is so important. Yeah, such a great point. I absolutely love that. And he surprised me when he said that he had to train himself to be good at public speaking. And you just surprised me by saying you had to train yourself 
to do presentations, to do the podcast. Well done. Your podcast is fantastic. You do a great job as the as the host of the show, and I've heard you as a guest on other people's show. You do such an awesome job. I do want to go back to your own personal um, diet, which I was going to ask about a little bit earlier. It's interesting that you found kind of more of the fasting than you found low carb. Quite often, it's the opposite that you find you know low carbohydrate, and then you're able to go weird weirdly long amounts of time without yeah. eating food. So you kind of you know back into fasting essentially. So yeah. what what, how, what is your diet like today, and how has that evolved over time? Yeah. So I'm semi carnivore. I'm not carnivore all the time, but I'm pretty much permanently low carb. So on a daily basis, pretty much no carbs in my life. Generally speaking, I eat one small meal a day and one big meal a day. Um, At the weekend, we had a a lovely weekend away. I mean, uh, very unusually for us, we had a Japanese meal. And I'm wearing my continual blood glucose monitor. And I knew I'd gone off piste. So, you know, and unusually for us, we drank like two or three glasses of wine, which is very rare for us to drink more than a glass. What's interesting is I had a small blood glucose spike and I fell asleep. And overnight, my I can now see looking retrospectively, my blood glucose and my my body, you can see my body struggling for control for more or less 15 hours. Wow. So I know it's not healthy and I can objectively see that. I do that maybe once or twice a year as a special treat. Most of the time, I'm basically eating a fairly high protein, medium fat, very low carb diet. Most of the time, I probably, I'm not anti-alcohol, but I know alcohol wrecks your sleep. So, you know, you're, I'm surrounded by these things. I drive Karen mad with this. I've got the aura ring. I've got this, you know, this, the sports watch. Um, and I'm, I'm wearing the Dexcom, right? Yeah. So I'm like, I, there's monitors all over the place, beeping <laughs> away. <laughs> um, but then I... I it, I'm quite fascinated by the data. And of course, I can, because I'm doing that all the time, it means I can apply it to my clients. So data is really, really important. What's also interesting is, and this is shown from the twin studies, there's this thing called the glycemic index. And the glycemic index is the kind of sugar equivalent of what you eat. So If you eat a banana or an apple or a McDonald's or a Japanese meal, what's the glycemic response compared with a certain number of spoonfuls of sugar? And that's an average. But that's only a fraction of the story. So that's an average across a thousand people. But there's an important concept in healthcare called the bell-shaped curve. And if you're on that side of the curve, or that side of the curve, your individual glycemic response can be equal and opposite. And I see this all the time when I'm looking after couples. So they will eat an identical meal and get a completely different glycemic response. And what we don't talk enough about is the is the role of the microbiota, the bugs in our gut. And they are a major determinant of our energy consumption, of our vitamins, our well-being, our immune systems, but also a huge determinant of our glycemic response. And that's why a one-size-fits-all low-carb diet doesn't work for everyone. So by providing the CGM and seeing how people respond individually means two things. One is they don't make the the, the mistake of eating the wrong things. But it often means we can do a biohack. So, for example, if someone says, look, I'm like for me, right? The one carb I'm not prepared to give up is beer. Right. And I don't drink to excess, but I do like a beer. But I know that if I pick lager A against real LB, I have a much less of a sugar spike. So there are little tweaks that you can do. As long as you're metabolically not broken, you can you can get away with it. Not all the time, like people do, but that way, by giving that very individual diet, we can say to people, look, no one should smoke, right? 
But if you occasionally want to eat a bit of artisan bread and it doesn't spike you and you love it and it means that you can sustain your diet as distinct from saying, look, I just can't do this diet. Forget it. Give me the metformin. Fine. So what we've got very good at is finding individual hacks or tweaks that allow people to cheat a little bit and get away with it. So long as they're well aware of not overdoing it, not pushing it too far, and they can see how they're doing, actually makes it more sustainable and more enjoyable. Yeah, I love the smoking analogy. I'll use that all the time. It's like, is smoking a cigarette good? Well, no, it's not good. There's not a universe that exists that it's not good. But like, if you if the goal is you know, to prolong your life, we just don't want you to be a three pack a day smoker. If it's like 20 cigarettes in a year, I'm not going to be oh so worried about that. It's not great, but it's not going to kill you. But having a treat every now and again, if it keeps you on and keeps you engaged, great, go ahead and do it. Um, oftentimes, I notice that people self-select those times less and less because they end up feeling so terrible and they don't want to feel terrible. It'd be like, okay, well, maybe I, you know, I had the cake last month and maybe I'm good on cake for a little while. Like they make better decisions as they go. I um, very, very rarely eat pizza. And I love pizza. And I used to be, I can eat a pizza, a family pizza, and then I can eat a second one <laughs> because it doesn't satiate me, but I love it. Yeah. And in the middle of COVID, I had to go and run one of the pharmacies myself full time because the pharmacist there was, um, he went off sick with stress. So I'm running the pharmacy in the middle of complete bedlam. And I say to the team, I want to treat you. And they wanted a, a pizza. Now, I could have got on my high horse and said, I'm not going to give you a pizza. You know what? That's what they wanted. I wasn't going to argue in the middle of a pandemic. So we ordered a whole load of pizzas. Everyone enjoyed it. I ate way too much pizza. Um, the next day, I felt so bloody ill. I can't tell you how dreadful I felt. And I've not eaten one since because I just thought, you know what? For the brief dopamine spike I had that next day, for the two days it took me to really recover, it ain't worth it. Not worth it. But at least no. I know. I, yeah. I know. Yeah, totally. No, for me, it's sugar. If I go off my carnivore, I remember two years ago, I ate a pie. I couldn't stop myself from eating the pie, and my anxiety came back. I just started spinning. It took a good day, day and a half to, to get rid of it, and it was so awful. that It's like, okay, well, you know what? I can stick with steak and eggs, and I think I'll be perfectly happy. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's not worth it. So, you know, I always, this is what I say to clients. Look, so long as you're making an, a fully educated dis, adult decision and you know what the benefits or risks are, fine. So, you know, uh, if we go to a really good French restaurant and there's a fantastic dessert and some artisan bread, and we might do that twice a year, I'm going to have everything on, right? The lot. But I do it twice a year. Yep. It's not going to kill me, and I love it, and I don't yep. feel deprived. Yep. But I'm not going to go to that restaurant and just eat some steak and nothing else. Yep. But mostly when we go out, we'll eat steak, and I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Graham, this has been an amazing conversation. I've really learned a lot from you, and I've loved following you. I can't wait to hopefully see you in person at one of these conferences coming up soon, whether you come back over here or I go over there. I would love to check out the public health collaboration uh, show that you guys did a few months ago. Um, just looks absolutely wonderful. For now, where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work? So um, if you go to the website, prolongevity.co.uk, or just think of the word longevity with pro in front of it and you'll find me. If you Google Graham Phillips Pharmacist, it will come up. Or um, the other places are my Twitter, Twitter handle. So the Twitter handle for prolongevity is longevity underscore pro. And I'm very active on Twitter, or I don't know if we're supposed to call it X now. Uh, I hope Elon Musk doesn't ruin it for us all. So um, I still call it Twitter, and it's my name. So it's at Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M-S, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S. Yeah, excellent. We'll tag that all in the show notes. I agree with you. Yeah. I'm not ready to call it X. And I was just talking to Brad and Maggie Jones about what are we calling posts now? I guess they are called posts and not tweets. Tweets are so much yeah. better. Like I said, so much better. Yeah. Good luck, Elon. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> silly, silly rebranding. Well, Graham Phillips, yeah. like I said, it was such an honor to be able to chat to you today and, and learn from you. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that you have the goal of really changing the paradigm. And it's not enough for you to fix your own life and your own health, but to be out there and try to help so many others is just a wonderful message. And I'm so glad you're doing it. So thank you so very much for all the work you do. And thank you for uh, being host on our show today. We really appreciate you. Oh, it's, it's been an absolute joy. Nice to meet you in, in person. I kind of feel that we're, we're in the tribe together. It's such a shame we didn't meet in Denver. But do you, do you come to the UK? Do you have calls to come to the UK from time to time? I, I don't, but my wife lived um, somewhere in the northern part of England. And so we're, we're actually dying to go back so she can show me where she lived. Right. Well, you, you definitely need to come over. We'll meet. We, you'll get to meet the Unwins. Maybe come to the Public Health uh, Collaboration Conference next May, uh, which is going to be in London somewhere. Um, and come and meet us all, and we'll that, you know, we'll look after you. That sounds amazing, and we can have a pint of warm beer as well. Absolutely. What could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? We'll enjoy that over a steak as well. <laughs> well all right. All this has been amazing. All the best to you as well. And this has been all another right. episode of Boundless Body Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to find out more, join our Wellness and Pro Longevity Facebook group. Don't forget to subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode and maybe share to friends and family who might benefit. Finally, if you think you might need help with diabetes, heart disease or any of the other diseases we discuss, then book a free consultation with Graham. There's absolutely no charge for this and we would never put you under any pressure. What do you have to lose? Bye for now and see you for the next episode.